Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nolan. I'd like to welcome you to a very special program. Continuing with our series of conversations with remarkable minds, will the real Bill Gates please stand up? My, ga- my guest, James Corbett. Uh, James is in Japan right now, and he is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report, a website he started in 2007 to provide critical analysis on politics, culture, economics, and history. He's written and recorded and hosted thousands of hours of audio and video, which has brought him to the attention of major independent media, such as RTV. He is also the lead editorial writer for The International Forecaster. James has directed many full-length and shorter documentaries and TV series. Some of the more recent ones are The 5G Dragnet, Secrets of Silicon Valley, 9-11 Whistleblowers, and World War I Conspiracy. And recently he produced a four-part series of short documentaries entitled Meet Bill Gates, The Person, His Career, and His Agendas. James's website, with his numerous podcasts, audio, and video programs, offering is Corbett, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Nice to have you with us today, James. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to be here. James, we are going to discuss themes from your series of videos about Bill Gates, but also the latest on the coronavirus, and also... Uh, take a look at 5G, since the big push now is everything 5G, and they're censoring on all of your social media platforms anything that's critical of 5G. And uh, and so we're only hearing the pro side, so we're going to break this into three parts. But I want to begin by taking an examination of some of the facts that we have called from all the official reports and then the independent scientists and physicians coming forward concerning the coronavirus. Because in my lifetime, I've never seen anything that has wrecked so much havoc on economies and on individuals, including individual health. Here's what we have been able to surmise, and then if you would, take it from there. We've been told with such authority from the World Health Organization and Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and other people within our bureaucracies like the CDC, that the coronavirus is one of the most deadly viruses in history. And it's, uh, it's in fact, so deadly that we had to, in a virtual shutdown of our society in order to protect ourselves. But then I began to ask some questions. As a scientist, as a PhD in human nutrition and public health science, in a 33-year senior research fellow at the Institute of Applied Biology and head of the anti-aging medicine department and publishing many peer-reviewed journals, 44 clinical studies, and uh, a professor at Fairleigh University, I look at things a little differently. In fact, one of the rules I was taught when I published one of my very first scientific breakthroughs, that all plants have all eight essential amino acids, therefore there's no reason to eat any animal protein, the director of the Institute at times says, okay, you think you've proven this? I said, sir, I believe I have. He's now disprove yourself. I didn't quite understand the concept. And the concept was, before you go ahead with some certainty, do everything humanly possible yourself and then with others to see, did you make an error? Is there a flaw? Now, why that's important is 67% of all clinical studies cannot be reproduced. That's their statistics, orthodox science. 
So when I started looking at all these deaths happening, not only in China, but also in Italy, uh, I then ask a basic question, a reasonable question. What actual analysis are they doing? What serological examinations? How are they determining these people actually died from the coronavirus and not with the coronavirus? And when I finally got data, I found out this was the most polluted area of Europe, that this is an area notorious for retirement and for nursing homes. And these people had already lived their maximum lifespan. Many of them were already in some form of assisted living or nursing home environment. And these are people who had at least two and three comorbidities, end-stage emphysema, congestive heart failure, cancers, etc. So then when a doctor there started to do an honest examination, he found out that death certificates were being signed without a full examination to determine did they actually even have the coronavirus and not just some symptoms. And so we didn't have actual act, good data. Then they were just using the PCR test. And I happen to know from the founder of the PCR, Kerry Mullis, who was a friend of mine, he won the Nobel Prize in 1986 for discovering the PCR. He said, you know, what it shouldn't be used for. And this is one of the things that you shouldn't use it. Just take the test. And if you have the coronavirus, it's going to show it. And therefore, we know it was not that there's no universal antibody test. Uh, there's determined if you have or haven't. Then I started finding out from scientific reports around the world that many of the people getting the test had false positives and false negatives, sometimes as high as 60 to 70% false negatives, meaning a person goes home thinking, I'm okay, I don't have the virus, and indeed they did. Then we were told you must sequester at home. Well, that didn't make any sense because historically the only time people sequestered were those who were sick, not the healthy. And then we found out that the mortality rates were not being honestly calculated in the United States in particular. Anybody dying of anything, it would end up being COVID. And then there was an uncover, undercover uh, investigation found out that every nursing home, or excuse me, every funeral home they were calling, the people weren't even getting any, any uh, autopsy reports, or they were just saying COVID, COVID, COVID for everything. Well, immediately then national policy, worldwide policy on what to do was being directed by misapplication of a mathematical model, meaning we were starting off with a flawed model on testing, on antibodies, and we were told then the antibodies were protective, but there were people getting COVID two or three times after their original diagnosis. So in not all persons could you say that if you got it, you were protected for life. So then we started seeing that 35 to 50 percent of the people dying were dying in nursing homes. They were there to die in any case. Why weren't we giving the credit to the disease that they were there dying from instead of COVID? So all this really uh, confused a lot of people, and yet they got away with it. Now they're rushing into a vaccine. Now, mind you, we have at least we found Richard Gell and I found over 160 studies in the peer-reviewed literature showing that if you took vitamin D at high doses, vitamin C intravenous, and vitamin uh, zinc and selenium, you could substantially protect yourself against a viral infection, not just COVID, but others as well. So then it came down to this. Why weren't any of the medical members of our uh, establishment advocating prevention, except for wearing masks and uh, staying inside and washing your hands and wearing gloves? They weren't talking about what your actual body could do to help you. and But it was all about the drugs. It was all about uh, the vaccines. 
So at this moment, I believe we have been substantially misled. I believe that, yes, it is a real virus, and yes, uh, it can be and it has been deadly, but no, when we look at the actual statistics, it's 0.23, which means that 99.7% of people who are not going to die from this thing, and yet we've acted like this is the bubonic plague. I, I'm sorry for the extended introduction, but this is a big deal. Could you please take your time now and unravel this story for us? Well, that's an awful lot that you put on the table, but as much as it was, it still only covers a fraction of the the lies that have been spread in the past few months. And uh, I have done my own work trying to document this, uh, these lies as they were unfolding before us. For example, I did a podcast episode on lies, damned lies, and coronavirus statistics, where I took a look at some of the statistics that were being used to justify these expansive governmental lockdown and and sweeping surveillance powers and everything else that's being introduced on the back of this pandemic scare. Uh, And I examined them for whether or not they actually held up to reality and found them quite lacking. And that was actually uh, in April. So obviously things have progressed even further from then. But even if you go and look at the data as it was unfolding at that time, you had a lot of very well-qualified people saying that this was an unprecedented scare over a something that does not deserve or warrant that level of panic. Um, for example, Nutkowski, uh, former epidemiologist for uh, the Rockefeller University, you had Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg uh, in Germany, who was formerly of the Council of Europe, Dr. John Ioannidis, who of course wrote that groundbreaking paper over a decade ago about why most um, published science is false or, or something along those lines, uh, Dr. Joel Kettner, Dr. Scott Jensen. I mean, there are a lot of qualified people who were attempting to blow the whistle at that time and being roundly criticized for doing so. And fast forward a couple of months, and lo and behold, they have been vindicated. What we are finding and what, in fact, the CDC itself is now quietly admitting in one of its most recent uh, published papers on COVID view uh, for key week update or key updates for week 17 ending April 25th, 2020. You can go and read where they put out in black and white um, the fact that this is essentially comparable, at least to a high-severity influenza season, which, if you said that a couple of months ago in the height of this uh, pandemic scare, you would have been denounced as, oh, you're saying it's just the flu. No, this is unprecedented in human history, etc., etc. Well, now the CDC themselves are saying, essentially, it's just the flu, bro. But uh, now the discourse has moved on, and unfortunately... Although this is a huge egg-in-the-face moment for a lot of the people who were pushing this, I don't, I haven't seen at any rate anyone uh, stepping back and apologizing for what the world has been put through on the back of this. And it's important to look at the, the ways that this was done. For example, there was an extremely influential study. I guess you could call it a study. It was really just a model that was put out by Imperial College uh, and their COVID-19 team. Uh, called Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand by a number of authors, but most notably Neil Ferguson. And that that name might ring a bell for people because Neil Ferguson is the same uh, epidemiologist, whatever he calls himself, really just a model um, maker, who has 
incorrectly modeled just about every major pandemic and scare in the UK and worldwide over the past couple of decades, and you can go and take a look at the, his track record of predicting millions of deaths and widespread panic over any number of things that have popped up in the past couple of decades, from foot and mouth to uh, to swine flu to bird flu, etc. And he's been wrong about every single one of those predictions. But here comes this COVID-19 model that was released back in March that was predicting as many as 2.2 million dead Americans and 500,000 dead Brits. Uh, obviously, that did not come to pass. And uh, when as this started to play out, and Ferguson was questioned about this in front of the UK Parliament, he was backtracking, well, no, uh, now that we've locked down, we're only expecting 20,000 deaths. So we were only off by an order of magnitude uh, plus. Um, but uh, then, of course, it later came out that Neil Ferguson was uh, going against the very lockdown regulations that he himself had been so instrumental in in getting implemented, not only by the UK government, but in the US as well. They were looking at that Imperial College study in the $2.2 million death figure. Well, Neil Ferguson himself was breaking those very lockdown measures that he was advocating for with his mistress, uh, who was sneaking out of her family home to come visit uh, Neil Ferguson for their their love affair, uh, which, uh, whatever one thinks of the morality of such a situation, the underlying point is that it demonstrates that not even Neil Ferguson, the one of the pe- people who was instrumental in getting these policies put in place, actually believed that those policies were necessary or that there was a vital threat to public health going on. If he actually believed it, he would not be engaging in breaking that those lockdown measures and potentially, as he himself had been uh, under observation for coronavirus just a couple of weeks before this incident happened, um, you might you might suspect that he would not want to spread this disease if he truly believed it was what it, what he said it was and would have the effects that it did. Uh, and of, of course, this is just one example of the so-called lockdown hypocrisy that's been documented in any number of politicians and medical uh, experts and epidemiologists and whatever who have been preaching this choir of let's lock down the healthy in order to protect the sliver of a fraction of a percentage point of the population who may be affected by this, uh, there's been any number of cases documented of uh, those those very same politicians and others pushing that line who were themselves breaking the very orders that they were giving to the rest of the population. Lockdown for thee, not for me. So I think it has been fairly thoroughly discredited at this point, um, but it, it continues to unfold. I think what we have seen is the implantation of a new narrative in the public consciousness. Just as 2001 brought in the narrative of the War of Terror and all of the associations with that, even after the direct psychological trauma of 9-11 started to fade, the implications of that moment maintained and and lingered on for for the past two decades. And we saw the implementation of greater and greater security theater, essentially, at the airports and everywhere else in the name of this boogeyman that had been instituted in that 2001 traumatic incident. Well, here we have had the traumatic incident of 2020, and even as it becomes discredited scientifically, the mechanisms have been put in place to extend what is going on right now and to to bring it into the future. And we are being told that we will have to adjust to this new normal and that will involve changing our habits here and there and we will have these immunity passports and all of these things that are now being systematically put in place on the back of a scare that we now know was vastly overblown. And that should cause many people to have some pause for thought about whether it is truly necessary to continue going ahead with these measures that we know has substantially 
impacted the economy for the negative over the past few months, putting tens of millions of people out of work, shutting down businesses, some of which will never again reopen, and fun fundamentally drastically changing our social relations on the back of this non non-scare this 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 absolutely overblown idea it should give us pause for thought whether we want to continue fundamentally changing the structure of our civilization on the back of this uh, this event and even today the world health organization said that the primary spreaders of the vector are not your asymptomatic carriers but rather people who are sick with coughs and colds that's how it's primarily spread which meant that millions, tens of millions of individuals who were asymptomatic should have been allowed to go back to work. Now, if you want to wear masks, you want to stay a safe distance, that's fine. But we destroyed people's lives. I'm, I'm looking at another part of this, and that is how many Americans were deep in debt, credit card debt, car debt, student loan debt, mortgage debt, prior to this happening, and then lost their jobs, not just their jobs, but in some cases in New York City, for example, it's a ghost town. And uh, as uh, we have 34 percent empty stores to begin with. This is going into the new year. In fact, I walked up the Broadway from 57th Street up to Columbia University, 115th Street, then went down Amsterdam and back up Columbus. That's the Upper West Side and the highest concentration of wealth and success in the world in a neighborhood and 30 Four uh, percent of all businesses were closed. Now it's going to be up around 50 to 60 percent because all those restaurants, boutiques, bakeries, they don't have the money to open. The landlords didn't give them a break. It's uh, it's the worst of all things. So now that person's living off credit cards. Interest rates are 20 percent. And so what if it happens when suddenly you've reached a max and you can't buy any more food or medicine or anything else you might need? And we're not looking at the human consequences of isolation, the human consequences of depression leading to suicide or taking opiates, and that can kill them. And so could you address the problems that we're facing or we're faced with but have no solutions for when it comes just to the human cause? Uh, the human cost of the, the lockdown and the insanity that we've witnessed this year is probably incalculable, but will be felt, I'm sure, by everyone who's listening to our voices right now, one way or another. I'm sure most people know someone who has been directly affected by this, had their, their livelihood taken away from them as a result of this, this chaos. So uh, I think that is already apparent, but it will become more so as the economic ramifications of what has been done, essentially shutting down a large section of the, the productive economy for months at a time, uh, will that those effects will be felt very sharply and in short order and for a very long time. There's no way of escaping that at this point. And uh, I think also, as you say, the, the human cost, the, 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 the health cost of this lockdown is something that will not, will not ever be able to directly uh, calculate, but which sh should be apparent to all. The fact that uh, all elective, uh, quote-unquote, uh, medical interventions of any sort have been uh, postponed uh, during this lockdown has resulted in some number of people who otherwise would have received life-saving medical attention for, to die. Uh, those people have been con condemned to death because 
the medical system was essentially shut down to deal with this quote-unquote crisis. And again, we'll never be able to directly calculate a number based on that, but it is undoubtedly true. And this is why even the UK government, when it was coming out with its uh, official statistics about the uh, number of excess deaths that were occurring over the past couple of months, uh, even mainstream media that was covering that story had to admit that some percentage, some non-insignificant percentage, as many as half of the excess deaths that they were reporting had nothing to do with COVID-19. But these are excess deaths. Where were they coming from? As, again, as even the mainstream reporting was was noting and quoting doctors and epidemiologists and others talking about the situation, they noted that at le- that a significant number of those excess deaths were happening because of the lockdown itself. This isn't some sort of situation where we can flip a switch, shut everybody in their homes, and everyone will be safe and protected while they're sitting there in their homes. No, there will be people who will be essentially harmed by that action. And not only that, but then even more abstractly, more difficult to to, uh, point a finger at, but people's immune systems are actually impaired by, by locking themselves up in their home for months at a time. Our immune systems are designed to interact with the people around us and to develop that kind of community interaction, which means that we, we share certain uh, gut flora and other things that will go around the community and will provide some level of immunity to things that are passing around the community. But when you lock people up in their homes away from all human contact for months at a time and then send them back out to mingle with each other, that they their immune systems have been harmed by that. Even the physical act of staying indoors and depriving yourself of vitamin D does obviously harm your immune system. And no, none of the uh, the, the, the uh, ideas or guidance about medical uh, interventions that we've seen over the past few months has focused at all on basic things like nutrition or uh, uh, being outside, getting exercise. It has all been about either PPE and masks and that sort of thing. Or eventually, of course, we're all going to need therapeutics and or vaccines based on this because, of course, there is money to be made from that. There is not money to be made from proper nutrition and and exercise and other things that people can do to take their immune systems into their own hands. So the human impact of this, as I say, it's it's ultimately incalculable. There are so many variables that we will never be able to fix a firm number to it, but it is undoubtedly true that we are heading into some very dark economic times that will have a profound and serious effect on the population, has already started to have in the uh, increase in suicide rates that have come as the result of the economic hardships that are people people are going through right now and has had a demonstrable effect on the uh, the medical uh, conditions of people who otherwise would have received life-saving treatment. So it has been a failure. Um, if anything at all good can come from this horrific situation that has played out, it is that uh, people will not be so quick to listen, to simply blindly, obediently obey the dictates, and not only obey the dictates of people who are telling them to lock lock themselves in their home, even though they are asymptomatic and uh, potentially never had anything at all, um, but also... I think more importantly, not to internalize that and to start policing each other, because that was one of the creepy uh, phenomena that we've seen over the past few months. Anyone who so much as decided to leave their home without express consent by the the governing bodies uh, was killing grandma. You're trying to kill people by going outside your home. And that sort of policing, um, that horizontal policing, people policing each other, essentially, is, is one of the creepiest aspects of this. And hopefully... 
hopefully those people who participated in that can at least uh, be shamed into not participating in the herd mentality that goes around in these types of situations in the future should this should this type of operation be played on the public again. I appreciate those insights. Thank you. Uh, Nikki Louise wrote in Tech uh, Startups yesterday, Norwegian scientist uh, Berger Sorensen is now reigniting the debate about the possible origin of the deadly coronavirus in a new peer review paper published together with a Professor Agnes uh, of St. George's Hospital at the University of London. Sorensen claimed the novel coronavirus is not natural in origin. According to the study, which was published in the Quarterly Review of Biophysics, the authors found that the coronavirus's spike protein contains sequences that appear to be artificially inserted. Quote, the inserted sequences should never have been published. Had it been today, it would never have happened. It was a big mistake the Chinese made. The inserted sequences had a fun functionality that we describe. We explain why they are essential. But the Chinese pointed to them first, Sorensen said. Then it goes, here's what really surprised me. <clears throat> he says, um, these are the sequences Sorensen thinks point to the virus has no natural origin. And he says, the eye-opening claims also found that the virus had been doctored to bind to humans. Quote, we are aware that these findings could have political significance and raise troubling questions. End quote. The two researchers also pointed out the virus had hardly mutated since it began to infect humans, suggesting that it was already fully adapted to humans. According to Sorensen, this is quite unusual for viruses that cross species barriers. According to Sorensen, the virus has properties that differ greatly from SARS and which have never been detected in nature. And then it talks about weaponizing it, that this is what you would see in a weaponized um, microorganism. So that's extremely troubling and not a word of this anywhere in the American media today. Your thoughts, please. Yes, this goes back to some very troubling research that has been playing out over the past couple of decades, but specifically in the past decade, called gain-of-function research, which uh, virologists have been participating in, ostensibly to better understand the way viruses develop and, and pass through animals and into the human population, so that we can anticipate things that may occur and hopefully develop treatments or vaccines or what have you in advance. That is the ostensible reason that this kind of gain of function research is, is done. And essentially what they do is they take a virus that is not, uh, cannot infect humans or is not particularly uh, 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 capable of spreading through the human population or is not particularly deadly, and they adjust it and they insert uh, proteins and what have you in order to actually make that virus potentially uh, to have more potential for a pandemic uh, capabilities in the human population. Again, this is being done supposedly to protect ourselves in case this sort of virus ever spontaneously develops in nature, then we'll already know about it and already be able to defend ourselves, which should probably raise some question marks amongst people in the audience. But even if this research was being done only for those reasons and only by the most compassionate angels that have ever existed, um, being funded by... Um, various uh, U.S. governmental agencies and others, and 
uh, and various private foundations and what have you. But again, even if these researchers were only engaged in this for the best of possible reasons, the possibility always has existed and has been noted even in mainstream coverage of this research over the past several years. The possibility always exists. If you are creating viruses in the laboratory with pandemic potential, there is always the possibility that that virus will slip out and will start uh, actively infecting people. Again, whether on purpose or whether accidentally or whatever narrative surrounds that, at any rate, it is certainly possible. And the interesting thing is that in 2015, the gain-of-function research that was being done about coronaviruses specifically and how they uh, coronaviruses spreading in the bat population in China was being conducted in various places, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, just a few dozen kilometers from the place where we are expected to believe, at any rate, was ground zero for this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but we have been asked to not look at that information. Um, people have been deplatformed over the past several months for even suggesting that there may be a connection. That started to change as the narrative started to change, and the Chinese boogeyman as the specter of... Uh, and the specter of World War III started to rear its head, suddenly it became okay for Fox News and outlets like that to to talk about this possibility. But still, it has been generally dismissed um, by a lot of people, and uh, there have been uh, papers published in, in Nature, for example, trying to say, no, this is a completely natural phenomenon. So this latest research is important, and I hope people will go and take a look at it. Um, uh, we're talking about a paper, uh, BioVac-19, a candidate vaccine for COVID-19 developed from analysis of its general method of action for infectivity. And in that abstract of that, it, it makes an important point. It says, mistaken assumptions about SARS-CoV-2's etiology risk, creating ineffect uh, risk creating ineffective or actively harmful vaccines, including the risk of antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE. So for people who don't understand what that means, uh, the coronavirus specifically, uh, there, wa there was an attempt to create a, a coronavirus vaccine, specifically a SARS vaccine, uh, related to the original SARS outbreak from 2003. Uh, for years, researchers were attempting to create some sort of SARS vaccine. Towards the end of the last decade, they did come up with a candidate, which they tested in mice and found that, in fact, the, the SARS vaccine they developed at that time actually made the mice more susceptible to infection from SARS. Uh, again, this is called antibody-dependent enhancement. It's a well-known possibility with the development of vaccines, and specifically in the case of development of coronavirus vaccines. But now we are being told that because of the grave nature of this threat to humanity, the bubonic plague on steroids that actually is about as deadly as the seasonal flu, um, is the reason why we need to have Operation Warp Speed and to bypass the years of research and testing that would generally be necessary to even think about introducing such a vaccine to the human population. Now we're going to, in the words of Bill Gates and many others, have to vaccinate basically everyone on the planet. We're going to look at creating 7 billion doses, but if it's a two-dose vaccine, I guess that's 14 billion doses, ka-ching, ka-ching for the vaccine manufacturers, uh, to uh, vaccinate everyone in the world with this experimental, and some of the leading candidates are literally experimental mRNA vaccines that have never been successfully developed or successfully used on the human population before, again, in the name of this urgent crisis, uh, that as the research is showing, could very well actually make people more susceptible to infection from this coronavirus. Uh, these are exceptionally important issues. And as you say, the silence 
in the mainstream of this part of the debate is absolutely deafening at this point. And everyone who has a uh, different position on this uh, is being systematically censored or deplatformed as anti-vaxxers who are in threatening public safety. And uh, that should be a worrying development for anyone who sees that there may be ulterior uh, motives at work in the development and deployment of this vaccine to basically everyone on the planet. We're led to believe, um, James, that anyone speaking out against any aspect of the coronavirus is without any scientific justification. They're just a conspiracy theorist. However, Daniela Pausati wrote an article in the current issue of Global Research entitled German Official Leaks Report Denouncing Corona as, quote, a global false alarm. I'll just quote the first paragraph. It says here that uh, some of the report key passages are that the the dangerousness of the COVID-19 was overestimated. Probably at no point did the danger posed by the new virus go beyond the normal level, as you just mentioned. And the people who die from corona are essentially those who would not statistically or would statistically die this year because they have reached the end of their lives and their weakened bodies can no longer cope with any random everyday stress, including approximately 150 viruses currently in circulation worldwide within a quarter of a year, there have been no more than 250,000 deaths from a COVID-19 compared to 1.5 million deaths or 25,100 uh, German um, in, in Germany during the influenza wave of 2017 and 18. So they're stating that, hey, we've had about a million and a half people die of the, of the flu every year. And, uh, and so therefore, this is, this is completely within the normal range. The danger is obviously no greater than that of many other viruses. Quote, there is no evidence that this was more than a false alarm. A reapproach could go along these lines. During the corona crisis, the state has proved itself as one of the biggest producers of fake news. So here is a member of the German intelligence community, the equivalent of our national security agency. And this is not an individual. It's a group of, of people who looked at all this very carefully and someone leaked it that the German federal government um, and, the, and the media were in damage control after the report that challenges the established Krona narrative leaked from Germany's Minister of the Interior. So that is a big deal. And virtually none of that reported in the American media. Your thoughts on that, please. Yeah, it's really startling, actually. I'm not sure I've been doing this type of work uh, for 13 years now, and I'm not sure I have ever seen a narrative collapse as spectacularly or as quickly as this coronavirus panic has collapsed. Uh, again, it's still, it's still somewhat startling that as little as a week or two ago, people were literally being called uh, murderers for stepping outside their home or daring to protest the lockdowns. And now we literally have the same epidemiologists and doctors and others who were calling people murderers for so much as stepping outside of their homes are literally on the record coming out and saying that now uh, the people who are participating, for example, in the United States uh, in the protests are uh, participating in a movement that will address 
the racism and injustice in American society, which poses an even greater threat than the virus itself. So it's okay for people to be protesting in this context. I mean, th this, uh, again, it shows that these people at their base were either lying to the public directly, or at any rate have come to realize that they were so incredibly wrong about this that they are now finding an excuse for backtracking on their original pronouncements. And I like to think I would really like to think that the public can see through this and see that the narrative has completely collapsed so that we should not just blindly trust the next time this mechanism is uh, is rolled out to be used against the public. And this, for people keeping track at home, this is not the first time that this type of pandemic switch has been attempted to be flipped in the public consciousness, going back to SARS, to bird flu, to swine flu, to Zika, to Ebola. For the past couple of decades, they have tried many times to whip the public into hysteria over these threats that continually fail to pan out. And the argument, the counter-argument may be made, oh, it's the precautionary principle, we have to be careful and we don't want to make people, uh, uh, we don't want to, to ignore a real threat just because other threats in the past have not panned out. But at, at any rate, as we have said, as we have documented here, there are many people who have died as a direct result of the lockdowns. It's not a question of you lock everyone down and everyone will be safe. No, you lock people down and some people will die because of the lockdown. So what kind of trade-off is being made here and who gets to make that decision? Some of the most startling things that I saw coming out of the United States during this panic were governors who were literally saying, I don't know the constitutionality of this. I'm not a you know constitutional lawyer. We're just going to do it and the courts can sort it out later. And that was the justification that governors were making, uh, including the governor of New Jersey, I remember seeing that one specifically, were making those arguments for how they suddenly got the power to literally close down all but quote-unquote essential businesses. Who gets to decide what is an essential business? Where is that in the U.S. Constitution, let alone the Constitution of many of the other countries that followed suit? So it, it has presented a case study that the public can learn from if... They are at least aware of these issues, but as as we've pointed out, uh, th this issue is not being covered in the mainstream because they do not generally like to point out the collapse of a narrative that was clearly meant to completely redirect the public consciousness and was remarkably effective for the at least the first couple of months. I think people are breaking through that, um, but I think we have to spread this information to others so that they can see very clearly that the narrative has collapsed, and the people who were telling you this was a existential threat to humanity that we had to change the fundamental rules of civilization for were lying to your face. And also just today, there was a report from Mass Private about the police using contact tracing in big tech to identify protesters, quote, um, Recently, 100 human rights groups warned that Apple Google contract, a contact tracing app could be used as a cover to identify activists and minorities and increase in state digital surveillance powers, such as obtaining access to mobile phone location data, uh, threatens privacy, freedom of expression and freedom of association in ways that could violate rights and degrade uh, trust and public authorities, undermining the effectiveness of any public health response. Now, but I want to shift gears because I want to get it now into Bill Gates. But before I do that, I just want to preface it. One of my biggest concerns about the COVID fiasco 
is the uh, the input of Anthony Fauci. I went against Anthony Fauci some years ago when it, I was writing extensively upon AIDS, and what we found is that one day a woman came into my office, a very tall, thin woman, and she had about a foot stack of documents, and she said, would you look at these? And I said, who are you? She's my name is Lynn Gannett, and I am one of the observers in the H uh, in the the AZT clinical trials occurring at University of Rochester and Syracuse and the other universities. And she said, it's a complete fraud. I've written all these letters here, copies to the FDA and the compliance officers, the FDA, showing them that people are dying, they're being excluded. People are tasting the tablets, opening them up. And if they taste sweet, then they realize that's a placebo milk sugar. So they're all using AZT and they have all these side effects. And she said, they're going to fast track it. Well, they did fast track it. Now, here's how it ties into Corona. I was working with people for 10 years before it was called AIDS when it was a gay, gay men's irritable uh, bowel condition. And a Dr. Stephen Kaiser, the leading gay physician in New York, or one of the uh, top gay physicians, was working with me. He was sending me his patients and I was working with them and helping them through diet, lifestyle change, and recolonization of the gut with healthy bacteria, et cetera, and vitamin C drips getting their health back. Well, when all those people began to show up and uh, were tested and were HIV positive, but otherwise completely healthy, that there was nothing wrong with them. And they started to take AZT. And the moment they started taking AZT, otherwise healthy uh, persons who were HIV positive by a false antibody test that Gallo owned the patent on, uh, they started to die. And then I looked at the package insert for AZT, and one of the very first things it says is that AZT can cause AIDS that you can virtually indistinguishable. So were people dying of HIV, the virus, or were they dying of, of the treatment? And we estimate as best we can, and it was Professor Curry Mullis who was talking with me at the time and a Dr. Stroman out at the University of California, Berkeley, who I filmed. And they believed that about a quarter million Americans died from the treatment. And yet nobody would look at it. It was politically unacceptable to challenge anything about it. You couldn't. You were suddenly an AIDS denier if you challenged anything. Now come forward. Now Bill Gates and others are rushing in to production uh, untested in any clinical uh, animal or human studies, any in-depth in ones. And I believe we're going to see something at a far worse scale of potential side effects as we did with AZT, but a thousand times worse because this is going to be mandatory. AZT wasn't mandatory. This is going to be mandatory. It already is. And New York, the New York State Bar Association just last week said that they expect every single person in New York State, with no exceptions at all, no, no allowances, every single person in New York State is going to have the, take the coronavirus vaccine. And the same is true in California. Your thoughts, please. And the role Bill Gates is playing in all this. Well, it is a nightmare scenario that's unfolding. And on a very specific note that we can already point to of the treatment uh, actually killing people rather than the disease is uh, played out in the first stages of this uh, pandemic scare where 
Uh, people were, of course, people might remember that part of the whole flatten the curve, the reason we have to lock down, or at least the ostensible reason that was being given to the public was because we were going to run out of ventilators. This disease was causing people to need ventilators because it was a uh, respiratory uh, virus and it was going to start killing people that way. So we need ventilators. And you might remember there was the scramble. How are we going to produce so many ventilators? How are we going to set up these field hospitals that ultimately ended up being completely empty and closed down without a single patient? Um, Well, part of that was this rush to get ventilators. And as it developed, um, people, I think, in the general public maybe don't have the experience to know that putting people on ventilators is an extremely serious uh, medical intervention. And even in the best of cases, just generally speaking, 40 to 50 percent of patients with a severe respiratory uh, distress or disease will die on the ventilator. But in the case of coronavirus specifically, what was happening in uh, New York City and elsewhere, over 80 percent of the patients that were being placed on the ventilators were dying. So there is very, and and that's as a result of that, doctors started moving away from putting um, uh, patients on ventilators and uh, stopped using it uh, as liberally as they were before. Um, So in that case, yes, the, the treatment can actually be the thing that is killing people. But of course, as Deborah Burks and others have noted during the course of this uh, virus. And anyone who was dying with COVID-19 was being classified as dying of COVID-19, regardless of whether it was the ventilator or anything else that killed them. So that is how we have come up with this startling and 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 breathtaking 100,000 plus U.S. people, have, uh, Americans have died and all of this, uh, this uh, hype that has surrounded this. And as you say, the implications for that are orders of magnitude worse for the idea of a experimental untested vaccine that is going to be forcibly injected in hundreds of millions, billions potentially of people around the world. It is unimaginable what is happening right now. And one of the people who has been behind this push for this idea of vaccinating the entire global population has been Bill Gates. In case people have been living under a rock for the past decade, Bill Gates has come to the fore of the global health uh, infrastructure as essentially a, uh, in the way that Microsoft attempted to monopolize the personal computers and uh, at least uh, take over the operating operating system space back in the 80s and 90s, well, uh, Bill Gates has essentially done the same thing in the field of public health. And this this isn't just myself talking. This is even uh, uh, publications like The Lancet were pointing this out back in 2009 when they were saying, they were started, starting to warn about the, the growing influence of, uh, of the Gates Foundation. And that was before the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced their decade of vaccines where they were going to invest $10 billion in, uh, in providing greater vaccine coverage, part of which was to be done through the auspices of an organization called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which was co-founded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and which partners the UN and the World Health Organization and foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with the vaccine manufacturers to, in their own words, and you can go read this on their own website, with the express and explicit purpose of creating healthy markets for vaccines. That is part of what the Gavi Vaccine Alliance is there to do. Of course, that's what vaccine manufacturers want. They want healthy markets for their products. So they are explicitly involved in this conflict of interest where they are 
absolutely for profit going out trying to inflict as, as much vaccination on as much of the global public as possible. And so it is perhaps no surprise whatsoever that one of the leading voices during this time of the coronavirus panic has been Bill Gates. He has been turned to by any number of media outlets that, oh, by the way, tend to be funded, at least partially, at least in their global health coverage, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, like NPR, like ABC, like BBC, like many other outlets. Um, and they have turned to Bill Gates as a leading voice during this time of, uh, of, of, of coronavirus panic. And he has said explicitly on many occasions, we're not going to return to normal until the vast majority of the globe has been vaccinated. Uh, so, and as we've pointed out. Again, this is happening during Operation Warp Speed, where uh, they're going as, as fast as possible, circumventing uh, established timelines for vaccine development and using experimental mRNA vaccine technology to uh, quicken things up so they don't have to incubate these vaccines in, in eggs and go through the regular va uh, uh, pr process. Now they can develop vaccines in a matter of months. And so we may see a coronavirus vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, again, anyone who is going to willingly um, submit themselves to rolling up their sleeve and being first in line for this vaccine without having seen the effects of it in extensive clinical trials, uh, I, I, I don't understand that mentality, which is why I think they are trying to get ahead of the game and implement this in law ahead of time to say that uh, and to change laws as they did, for example, in the UK with the Coronavirus Act. As you note, they are already coming out and saying in New York uh, State and other places, this is going to be mandatory and there is nothing you can do about it. In other localities, I'm sure it will not be mandatory legally, but I'm sure there will be uh, uh, immunity passports of one sort or other that will be required uh, to show that you're, you, you have been vaccinated in order to access this public space or or what have you. This is the the, the system systematic infrastructure that we're seeing rolled out right now, which is tying into the contact tracing, which is tying into the biometric identification grid that is going into place that will be tied into these immunity passports that will eventually also be tied to cashless payments as I go through in my series on Bill Gates, which for the record is at CorbettReport.com slash Gates. I hope people will go there. It's a four-part documentary that's 100% freely available audio, video, and a complete hyperlinked transcript of the entire documentary. Do not take what I am saying at face value. I link up all of the sources of what I'm talking about so that people can investigate them more for themselves. And once they do so, I think they will see what we are living through is essentially not just the greatest swindle in the history of humanity, although that is part of it with regard to the CARES Act, for example, being passed in the United States, let alone the various bailouts, corporate bailouts, of course, that are taking place around the globe, let alone the billions of doses of this vaccine that assume, assume, we can assume are going to be manufactured on the back of this. It's not just a monetary swindle. This is actually a power grab, the likes of which we have never seen before on the planet, by which, at the end of which, every single movement, every single contact that you have, every transaction that you have is going to be monitored in real time in the name of public health of course, and will never be abused by any government agency or public health official dot dot dot. I think we can understand uh, where this is heading and why this has been the nightmare scenario proposed by every dystopian sci-fi writer since Orwell. Uh, it is coming true in the light of this pandemic non-crisis, as we are now learning. And uh, unfortunately, Bill Gates has been kind of like the spider at the center of that web, funding every aspect of this agenda. We have five minutes remaining in our program. I wanted you to d devote time 
to showing the other side of Bill Gates, the person who is a very big enthusiast of eugenics, because he has stated repeatedly on the record at a TED Talk that we could get between 10 to 15 percent of the world's population under control through vaccines. And then we find that a tetanus vaccine in Kenya uh, was a sterilizing vaccine. They stopped it after the doctors found out about it. But the Gates Foundation was one of the sponsors of that. Could you give us the backdrop on how dangerous this whole cabal of people who believe that we need less people, of course, not people like them or not people from a certain class, but people in poorer countries? Well, it's important to point out the uh, the side that Bill Gates will point out and that the so-called fact checkers who have appointed themselves as the gatekeepers essentially of information in this online news era uh, would point out, which is to say that Bill Gates is not saying that he's going to use vaccines to reduce the population. What he's saying is that if we do a good job and if we get child mortality rates down by introducing vaccines here and there, then uh, parents will have be incentivized to have less children because they essentially are trying to get two children to live to adulthood. But if there's a high child mortality rate, they'll have many children to ensure that two reach. And uh, that's what leads to overpopulation. Now, the argument that he's making there is not really a scientifically backed one. He uh, sources Hans Rosling, uh, who who came forward with this idea in recent decades. Um, as far as I know, there's no actually published verified scientific research behind that. But at any rate, we can tell that is a fig leaf uh, of a cover for what is essentially the real agenda here. And we know that because, for example, just as one example as that I document in the, uh, in the documentary, in 2009, uh, Bill Gates and David Rockefeller and Warren Buffett uh, sent out invitations to a group uh, to meet at Rockefeller University campus, a group of billionaires, including people like Ted Turner and others who have been on the record stating that they're, they're, part of their goal is to reduce the human population. Um, and they invited these people to a, uh, a, a secret meeting that was held off the record at Rockefeller University that it was discovered after the fact uh, was s d devoted to the question of how these billionaires can devote their resources to reduce the world population. And as I, it, this is a big story, and I, I understand people who are just finding out about it may not uh, know the historical uh, development of population control and, and this idea, but it does relate to the eugenics philosophy, ideology, a pseudoscience that was developed in the late 19th century and which was the rage, absolutely the core scientific belief of the early 20th century that was propounded by everyone who was anyone, including Teddy Roosevelt and many others, that essentially held that the rich and powerful were rich and powerful because their genes essentially made them better human beings. And therefore, they deserved to propagate um, and, and to breed with each other to have good children with good genes. And the poor classes were poor because they had bad genes that needed to be eliminated from the gene pool. This idea led to the forced sterilization laws and others that were all the rage in the United States in the 20s and 30s until the Nazis and the atrocities of World War II put a bad light on eugenics. So uh, unfortunately, eugenics did not go away. It simply changed its name through a process called crypto-eugenics. And we saw the American Eugenics Society, for example, morph into the Population Council, which was funded by John D. Rockefeller III. The Rockefellers had been instrumental in funding the original eugenics 
quote-unquote science. Uh, and that torch has been picked up by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in recent years. Again, there's uh, there's a lot of data here for people to digest. So I hope they will go to the documentary and take a look at it and take a look at the source documents that I'm pointing to. I think you will come to the conclusion that there is a different uh, ideology at work than simply Bill Gates having some sort of road to Damascus moment of suddenly becoming a, a world-saving philanthropist after having spent a couple of decades ruthlessly running his monopolistic business practice suddenly caring about people all around the world, even as he wants to reduce the world population. There are obvious contradictions in that official narrative that can only be resolved when we understand that eugenics is the underlying philosophy that people like Bill Gates are pushing here. And I want to stress it is not all 100% Bill Gates. And if if the Gates Foundation was eliminated, this would, idea would go away. Unfortunately, no. There are many people who willing, wittingly or otherwise go along with that eugenics-based agenda. And I think this needs to be brought out into the open and really discussed. I agree. And we're out of time. Thank you very much, James Corbett, who's over in Japan. We're speaking to him by Skype. And he has the website. You can find all of his videos, audios, podcasts, everything at CorbettReport.com. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening.